It's six o'clock, so we might as well begin. Hi, dude. Hi. Um, Ted, did you have any uh, comments or suggestions, or we just dive in and? Well, it seems like we've got a great set of questions. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we just go ahead and do that? Um, By the way, um, Anthony was, I think, the the odd man out last time. He asked a question, but it didn't get it didn't get captured last time. So if he's got a question, we might want to let him go first. Oh, that sounds like a great idea. Okay. Um, there we go. Yeah. Okay, so so is, is it Anthony, you said? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> hmm. Hey, can you hear me? Yes. Great. Um, actually, my question I posted, it should be the second one this time. So I can yeah. just wait. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you, though. Mm -hmm. How do I know when I've moved from stream entrant to once returner? Additionally, besides just continuously being mindful of aversion, craving, and continuing meditation, are there any other practices which help to accelerate the progression? Okay, so just to clarify, Anthony, you're speaking uh, here in terms of the Ken Fetters model, Ken uh, Fetters forecast model, right? Correct. And, and so by that model, the, uh, uh, the criterion that defines second path is that, um, <clears throat> that craving has become sufficiently attenuated has lost its power to such a degree that you can proceed to systematically root it out in all of its uh, forms, at least uh, those having to do with, with the sense realm. So your question, how do I know when I move from stream entrant to once returner? Um, well, there is this sort of profound insight that characterizes these um, shifts in path. Um, they're not necessarily highly dramatic, but they are, are, are consistent in that uh, they, they produce a, a very recognizable shift. Now, what happens at this juncture between first path and second path that actually moves a person from one to the other is there is a, a really powerful realization that they have that um, so much of everything that they have ever uh, thought, said, and done has been uh, driven by craving in some way or another. Uh, and uh, or sometimes this realization will take the form that um, that everything that they've ever thought, felt, or, or almost everything that they've ever thought, felt, or done 
has been driven by attachment to the self. And as you can probably see, these are really two different aspects of the same thing. If you, uh, to the degree that you uh, feel and believe that you are a separate self, then to that degree, uh, you are going to, uh, craving is the logical outcome of that. So there's this realization, and um, part of it is, is, is realizing that, that you, have, you have an attachment to craving, that, that, uh, that craving itself produces a, a kind of pleasure, and that even though in, in the course of uh, your work on first path, you, you have been at the same time harboring certain uh, favorite uh, cravings that you <laughs> indulge in. Um, I guess maybe the best way to describe the realization um, is that it becomes clear to you that the only mental states that you've ever that have ever been fully satisfactory, you know, in other words, truly free from anger, have been those when there has has been neither craving nor any sort of uh, 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 attachment to the self. And, it, and so you realize craving as the enemy in a very gut-level way. And um, you see through you see through the delusion that has allowed you to persist in uh, essentially tolerating the suffering of craving, the dukkha that comes from craving. That is where the power comes that defines you as second path. That power arises when there is this deep, deep insight that um, where you are, is not good enough. As long as there is still um, craving and attachment to self, then um, uh, it's not satisfactory. Stream entry itself, in my in my own case, it was like, wow, this is this is so much better than anything in my life has been before. You know, I I, I just I, I couldn't imagine anything better. So I didn't have a lot of motivation but eventually I came to that realization yeah it was in a retreat and it was following instructions to be mindful of mental states as they arose and pass away arise and pass away and uh, realizing that having exactly that realization and this is a form it took for me but in people that um, I discussed it with and do interviews with it's a variation on this I had the realization that uh, that this wasn't good enough, that uh, and and that there was something much better yet awaiting me, and that that I could see that the reason that, that the problem was the craving and the attachment to self. So this realization, this in, this this is really a deepening of the insights that that brought you to stream entry. But with, these, uh, with this deep insight, it, it craving loses its power. And so now you can begin to confront and root out craving. Uh, whenever you're feeling the dissatisfaction, the suffering of dukkha, 
you know that there's craving and self-attachment. And so in a very mindful way, you can begin recognizing that, acknowledging it, letting go of it. And that is the practice that will, that is the practice of cycling path. So how do you know when you've become uh, uh, a uh, once-returner? Uh, once it's when you find that um, craving doesn't have the same power over you that it once did because you see it as the enemy uh, of uh, true well-being that it is. And you have the ability and really the compulsion, the drive, a powerful drive to eliminate craving. Is there a distinction uh, in this framework between intention, intention and wanting? Like, if I intend for something to happen consciously, is that considered craving? No. It depends on whether the intention, what, where the intention comes from. I mean, intention is karma. Buddha took the idea of, of karma Word karma means action, and it come to mean actions with moral um, consequences for the individual that performed the action. And the Buddha took that concept and found it to be a beautiful concept. But he redefined it. He said, when I say karma, I mean intention. And so you have both good and bad karma. You have both good and bad intentions, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we know the difference between good and bad intentions. The things that we use wanting for most common are bad intentions in the sense that they're rooted in self-attachment and uh, some form of craving, desire or aversion. That by themselves, that by themselves makes them unwholesome because they are increasing the power the craving has over you. And they are strengthening your attachment to the, the uh, notion of self, the ego self. So whenever you're acting out of those kinds of intentions, or even holding those intentions, you're moving in the wrong direction. When, now, there's an interesting thing about it, that these, this desire for self-gratification or self-protection um, and it is um, usually manifesting in some in some words or action that are in some way um, benefiting you at the expense of others. Right. Mm -hmm. So you know the two go together. The un unwholesome nature of the speech and action is usually linked to its deeper sense of unwholesomeness in that it has its origins in, in cravings and, and uh, self-attachment. Mm -hmm. Likewise, what we would consider wholesome actions, generosity, altruistic behaviors, loving kindness, acts of compassion, these often are coming with a denial of our self-benefit, or at some cost to us, or at least, at the very least, at no particular benefit to us. In other words, they're coming from a place of 
selflessness and, and uh, denial of craving. So they're moving us in the right direction. So, yes, intentions uh, can be both good and bad, and they are karma, and they are what changes who we are in the future. Hmm. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you would associate craving to low-level intentions, you could say, like low-consciousness intentions. So would you say that one should just be aware of the purpose for their intentions and let go of those like low level purposes for those intentions? Yes. Yeah. I understand. Now the simple thing is you can just say, if I'm about to say or do something that's going to be harmful to somebody else, then uh, let me look at my motives. If I'm doing something that's going to be beneficial to others, I look at my motives, and you can come to understand and you can learn this about yourself. It's a practice. It's a practice through which you learn to recognize your good and bad intentions. Mm. And you can practice not following through and letting go of the bad intentions and vice versa. Um, but um, you don't get down on yourself when you fail. You just... You just resolve to do better next time. Okay? Great. Thank you very That's much. One thing talking about this is you know, don't want to make it a pathway into uh, any kind of self, uh, self blaming or anything like that. I understand. Thank you. Okay. So, yes, we'll go back to the first question. What is the most likely progression on the stages of awakening to expect in following TMI? Do most students simply go through them in a sequence, first path, second path, third path, on um, In my experience, that's, that is how it happens. And uh, the most likely first stage of awakening reported is um, stream entry. Um, when you say reported, sometimes uh, the person reporting it doesn't recognize it and realize what that is. But uh, yeah, that's that's usually the way that it happens. Now, there is one thing I think I'm trying to think where probably should ask Valentino where this question comes from, but I'm going to try to to to. to speculate. There is one thing about path attainments and stream entry in, in particular, but it's true of the other path attainments as well, is that the initial effect is you often have the characteristics of a higher path than you have actually attained to. So somebody achieving stream entry, there's what I call the afterglow, which can last for from hours to, to weeks. And during that period of time, the person often manifests many of the characteristics of a higher path, but, but they kind of come back down to what is their new normal, which is that of the, of the stream entry. There is, there's the reappearance of uh, craving and, these, uh, and uh, this craving uh, grows stronger. If, if there was a persistent loss of the uh, um, 
sense of self, um, then that's a really wonderful thing. Now you, you have an idea what it's like to be an arhat. But if you haven't gone through, if you haven't trod the intermediate paths, if you haven't undergone the transformations that they produce, then that quality that belongs to the arhat that you enjoy for a period of time eventually disappears. Okay? So, I, I think that's where, I think that's where the question of, you know, do the paths happen in sequence or not is, is, is coming from. Um, especially when somebody is referring to it in terms of the, the four-path model. Let's keep in mind that there are other maps and there are many other definitions of what awakening means, uh, terms like enlightenment and liberation and things like that. Um, there's a lot of, um, lot of territory there and um, Yeah, so it, it does kind of depend on uh, uh, which, uh, which practices that you're engaged in, which uh, uh, belief system that uh, you're operating from, um, and the form that that will take. But in terms of the four path, in terms of, of TMI and my experience with uh, uh, people who practice with me, is that Pretty consistently, you've got to go through the paths in, in, in order. Some people can go through them very quickly. Some people have done so much work that they go from first path to second path, you know, uh, very quickly. Um, likewise, even to third path. So I hope that satisfies you, Valentino. I, I don't see you on a group, so I can't answer um, Thomas, you're with us today? Maybe not. Okay, so Thomas says, a few authors such as Tanisaro Biko and Rob Berbia encourage adjusting and experimenting with a breath to allow for feelings of comfort, relaxation, joy, and similar positive feelings to arise. In TMI, you emphasize not trying to consciously change the breath. Could you please contrast the two approaches, pointing out pros and cons of each, if possible? Yes, well, I'm really, I, I totally agree as far as, uh, as generating feelings of comfort, relaxation, and joy a positive feeling uh, in association with meditation. It's one of the best things that you can do to uh, accelerate your practice is to uh, uh, is to enjoy it. And um, and so whatever you do to achieve that. Now, adjusting and experimenting with the breath in particular, I don't. I wouldn't discourage somebody from doing that if they were a beginning meditator and they were having trouble uh, achieving uh, any, enough uh, 
stability of attention on the breath to carry forward with the practices. So um, I, I don't think it's really necessary. I think that, um, that uh, most people, um, if, if, they, if they look for the joy, uh, if they try to make sure that, uh, if they take appropriate steps to assure that they found an appropriate uh, meditation posture, if they learn to, whenever there's, they're feeling discomfort, if they learn to recognize that there's also pleasant feelings at the same time, if they learn not to allow uh, uh, um, expectations to produce disappointment and frustration and other negative emotions, um, they, I, I, I don't think they need to adjust an experiment with the breath. But I wouldn't mind if a beginning meditator wanted to do that. I'd say, sure, go right ahead. But what you're really after is to get to a place where you are as much as possible the objective observer and the breath happens by itself and you're observing it. Because we're always trying to do. And one of the ways that we get in the way it get in our own way in meditation is we try to do those things that we can't do, we can't make happen, that they happen because we relax, we do the practice, we, we trust in the practice, and uh, lo and behold, we experience the results. Uh, striving and trying to get in the way and, and manipulating. Um, so my feeling in terms of the cons of adjusting and experimenting with the breath is it, it subtly feeds into that idea that there are ways that you can, that, that there's a you in control of your mind and you can manipulate your body and manipulate your mind in ways that's going to make it easier or make it, uh, allow you to experience the, uh, um, goals of meditation. Uh, more easily, and that's not a good attitude. I'm, I'm, I'll tell you a, a, a funny story. Um, at least I think it's funny. Um, a very wonderful person, a student of mine, um, brilliant man, everything else, um, asked me in, in a class full of people. He said. Sometimes I find in meditation that uh, sexual fantasies arise. And these are much, much easier to focus my attention on than, uh, than the breath. Would it be okay to use that as my meditation object? And, um, well, <laughs> it led to a, a good discussion. But it, it's an extreme example of what a lot of people do. Try to find some way to make it easier rather than just relax, do the simple things that you need to do and allow it to happen by itself. You don't try to make it happen. You don't try to invent a trick to make it easier. You don't try to manipulate things to make it easier. So if someone did use, uh, uh, was manipulating the breath in order to facilitate their um, getting into meditation, you know, that would be fine with me, but I would encourage them, as soon as you don't need this anymore, drop it and, um, and, and 
and I would caution them against the particular tendency that we all already have when we sit down to meditate, that it's reinforcing. So, and, and so being on guard in that way, um, then, then it becomes more, then somebody can do it as more, more the way we use things like following and connecting to help slow the people. Edel Quinn has the next question. Um, and I assume that most of you had it in front of you and can read it. So I'm going to start with the second paragraph. <clears throat> our understanding of the law of karma is that our actions in this life will generate good, bad karma conditions that will ripen upon us in future lives. And that the purpose of karma is to encourage the practice of virtue. However, since you have taught us that there is no reincarnation, no Atman, uh, no past, present, or future separate selves to inherit good, bad karma, then does a belief in karma provide any benefit or have any meaningful role in TMI? In other words, is a belief in karma among the rites and rituals of Buddhism that are to be eventually discarded. Um, <laughs> the, the attachment to and concerns about reincarnation and future lives are something that the Buddha actually cautioned us against. He said, don't worry about where you came from. Don't worry about what's going to happen after you die. Be concerned about your awakening in this life. Practice and follow the Dhamma in this life. He stood out. He was unusual amongst the, the many teachers of his time. And uh, his, uh, his teaching differed from theirs in a very significant way. He taught awakening in this life, that you can, that everyone can awaken in, within this life. All of the other teachers were teaching some sort of liberation, some sort of release from the wheel of samsara, from the endless cycle of birth and death and suffering that was going to occur after you died. The Buddha was teaching the path to awakening in this life and said, make that your primary concern. The other thing is that the Buddha recognized uh, the law, ultimate law of causality, the Ticha Samupada, that cause and effect, that absolutely everything has consequences, absolutely everything is the result of causes and conditions that everything is connected through cause and effect. Now, the, the pre-Buddhist and uh, non-Buddhist, current non-Buddhist uh, um, version of karma is a really relatively simple one that says the only law is this moral law, uh, and that the only form of causality is... Uh, 
is this kind of karmic causality. So that means that when there's an airplane that crashes, it has 350 people on it. Somehow, the universe manipulated things so that all 350 people who got on that airplane happened to have the karma to die in the airplane crash. Or anything else, that you, any other situation that you can think of like that. The Buddha instead saw that there was a much, much more powerful use for karma. Yes, that kind of view, you know, yes, I want a better life in the future, so I'll be virtuous. I'll try to, uh, I, I'll, I'll try to avoid uh, doing those things that are uh, going to cause uh, a, a poor rebirth. And I'm going to try to do those things that will bring about a fortunate rebirth. But he found that the basic principle that was being discussed had a much more realistic and a much more powerful application. When he redefined it as intention, karma as intention, <clears throat> now the situation that you have, um, there is a consequence. Your intention, just as I spoke about earlier, your intention is either going to strengthen the, your attachment to the notion of self and further enslave you to craving, or it's going to loosen the attachment to self and, and weaken the power that craving has over you. And that, that is good and bad karma. That is good and bad karma that manifests in your life. Your actions today create the person that you will be tomorrow, next week, and next month. In every present moment, you are creating the karma that is going to manifest in who you are in, in the future. This is a much more powerful application of the idea of karma. And it loses nothing of the virtue-enhancing uh, uh, result of the other form. Because, <clears throat> after all, if we look at those, those kinds of speech and act, thought, speech, and action, let's include thought in them, those kinds of thought, speech, and action that we would consider as virtuous, and we compare them to the kinds of thought, speech, and action that we would consider them to be non-virtuous, what we will find at their root are that they come from these two different kinds of intention, wholesome and unwholesome. And their wholesomeness is the degree to which they are uh, denying uh, the demands of the self and, and the compulsion of craving, and they are unwholesome in the degree to which they succumb to the compulsion of craving, and they, uh, they, cling, they, they manifest a clinging to self. The idea that I hold myself more dear than anything else in the universe. That is the, that's what's reinforced by... Um, by unvirtuous actions. You'll find that in them. So the, the Buddha took uh, a rather simplistic idea, but, what, but had at its heart a really powerful principle and applied it in a different way, in a much more effective way. And it uh, allows us to uh, step aside from worrying about... Uh, uh, future lives and, and past lives and focus on 
moving ourselves towards nirvana, nibbana. Moving ourselves away from the delusion and the entrapment that brings so much suffering into human existence. So karma is very much at the root of TMI, but we just use it in the sense that the Buddha defined it. And I think you'll find that pretty clearly described in the appendix to TMI that uh, is the uh, mindful review. Uh, here's a question from Adrian a week ago. <clears throat> Pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Hence, pain and suffering are two different things. Yep, at least that's how I define it. I use the word suffering to refer to something different than pain. If we remove the suffering, is pain just a sensation, like the sensations of my back touching the chair, a neutral sensation, or the sensations of a massage, a pleasant sensation? There must be something intrinsic to the sensation that characterizes it as pain, pleasure, or neutral. That is absolutely right, Adrian. You're right on there. Uh, just as um, for, for an arhat or a Buddha, there are neutral sensations, there are pleasant sensations, and there are also unpleasant sensations. And when I say pain, use the word pain, I'm referring to unpleasant sensations. They listen. They have, it's an unpleasantness, it's the, the uh, Vedna of Dukkha that has its roots, uh, or has its origin in the body. Now there's the mind's reaction to that. So let's see what Adrian says next. If this is true, the suffering that is produced by the reaction to the pain is the only one that can be removed by not having aversion to, and therefore not triggering the suffering. Yes, that's right. The, the, what's called the first noble truth, um, the, the truth of suffering, um, you could sum up, and, and I like to, as saying pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. So the unpleasant sensations generated from the nerve endings in, in your body going to particular centers in your brain are going to be experienced as unpleasant. But the mind's reaction to it acts as a multiplier. So, and it's really, the mind's reaction is a resistance as opposed to an acceptance. So the, to the degree that you resist pain, you experience suffering. And uh, my friend Shinzen Young has a wonderful uh, uh, little formula and it's in TMI. Uh, and I absolutely love it. Uh, suffering equals pain times resistance. And so it's that mental reaction that produces the suffering. And because it is a, it is a multiplication, then it has two interesting consequences. One is that, that without the resistance, the unpleasantness of pain itself is much, much less. Um, the... And the other is that if resistance becomes zero, then suffering is zero. So there's still unpleasantness. There's the unpleasantness of the pain itself. And I can tell you from personal experience, that's something that it, you can 
just accept and more or less allow to be there and otherwise disregard. But the part that belongs to pain is still there, which contradicts the statement of the beginning. It seems like we are working to remove the layer of suffering that depends on the logic by which we respond to. But there is still another dimension that is unremovable. Um, that is true, but it's not a contradiction. The Buddha did not say that you would not experience pain by following the path that he taught. He said that you would overcome a particular kind of suffering that is generated by the mind and is a reaction of, of, of the mind. And uh, traditional Buddhist doctrine teaches, well, it, not in all schools, uh, but in uh, uh, certainly in, in the Theravada, uh, uh, it, it's, and, and I think in most other schools, it's taught that, that Buddhas do experience the Vedmas. The, the uh, feelings are pleasant, neutral, and unpleasant. And so unpleasant, the unpleasantness that they experience is that which is hardwired into uh, our body. And so long as we are in a body, they will, they will be there. They'll be a part of it. But by, by defining suffering as the mental reaction, we're not contradicting this to say that there's still unpleasant physical sensation. Let's see, I am uh, confused about this, especially if we add the idea of realizing, awakening, or attaining fourth path, which if properly done, deepening the insight into no self, seems to remove the assumption of being a self, which is the thing that is susceptible to the suffering. Um, that, shouldn't, uh, that shouldn't be troubling. That, that's exactly right, yes. That, that, that is, that's it exactly. The reactivity, the resistance, is a manifestation of craving which has its origins in, uh, uh, in the self. And, and with the deepening insight to no self, it, and with the removal of the assumption of being the self, then there is no longer that resistance. There is no longer that reactivity. And there is no longer that suffering. So, does this realization remove the reactions to the pain? Yes. And the part of the suffering that goes with them? Yes, but not the part that is intrinsic to the pain. That's correct. Exactly. So, you figured it out, Adrian. And uh, I could have just skipped to the end of this and said, yes, that's right. <laughs> very, very good. Very good. Now, let's see. Crystal Maynard has a question. Have you heard of and or experienced transfer of consciousness occurring between two living adults? If so, from what and to what is the consciousness being transferred? And what is the purpose of the transfer? Well, <clears throat> From what I have learned and from what I have experienced, um, I uh, have a strong conviction that uh, that our there, our minds are connected and they interact other than just through the body, through speech, uh, through physical interactions between. 
that if anything, the individual mind is uh, a kind of porous barrier that filters out enough that a person can experience their individuality, which is a good thing because if there weren't these barriers, then when you walk out the door in the morning, you might not know uh, uh, whose job to go to or whose car to get into and try to drive. <laughs> that could be confusing. Um, have you have a, I heard of or experienced transfer of consciousness occurring between two living adults? Um, it, I, I have, and that's why I say what I just said. Uh, if so, from what and to what is the consciousness being transferred? Well, it's like as the water, uh, as the as you stir your cup of tea and the water moves and things like that. Um, to what and from what are uh, are it is what being transferred? Well, we could uh, we could somehow label one group of water molecules and, and say uh, that. That's entity A, and then as they become dispersed, uh, uh, they might uh, become part of some other group of water molecules that we might have identified as entity B. Um, what is the purpose of the transfer? It depends on whether it's a purposeful transfer or it just happens. Um, and a lot of times it just happens. That's a, a very difficult question to answer because um, it's sort of the thing that if you, if you haven't had certain kinds of experiences and if you're attached to a certain view of consciousness, especially a lot of us tend to identify uh, consciousness with self. If we keep pushing, you know, well, is this self? No. Is that self? No. Very often where people end up with is consciousness. Oh, I'm my consciousness. And uh, that, is an, that is as much an illusion as any other thing that we choose to uh, label as self. So, uh, so to discuss this particular question meaningfully, um, there needs to be a commonality of experience and there needs to be a shared understanding of what consciousness is. And uh, to the degree that a person has uh, reified consciousness, fetishized consciousness, made consciousness into this special, wonderful thing, um, then um, it's going to be difficult to communicate uh, uh, about that. I'm going to move on to Andrea's question. I find it concerning that there are so many awakened people who seem to behave poorly in different ways. I like the way awakened is in uh, quotation marks on this because there are so many different things that people think are awakening. <laughs> so there are so many awakened people who seem to behave poorly in different ways. At its worst, this bad behavior might involve gross ethical violations, or it might involve grandiosity and potentially abusing the guru-yoga relationship, or it may just amount to personal blind spots where that person can no longer see their own faults, and they're unlikely to accept feedback on that subject. 
For example, an Arya might dismiss constructive criticism from someone they see as a worldling, since clearly that person isn't operating on the same level as they are. Now, I would say that that person is manifesting conceit, and an Arya um, who has uh, become an Arhant would not have uh, those particular con conceits. Um, but um, someone on an earlier path might, and uh, they might have such a conceit that uh, allowed them to uh, to take that attitude that you know I'm I'm wiser and more spiritually developed than this person, and so um, therefore, uh, what right do they have to uh, criticize uh, the behavior of, of someone who is as wise as me? Um, that's just an indication of the incompleteness of their own personal spiritual development. Stream entry, entry is uh, a huge transition. It is very transformative, but it's nowhere near the end of the path. There is so much further to go, so much more work that you need to do on yourself. And so someone may be awakened in uh, and keep in mind, there's many different definitions of awakening and many different criteria that people are going to use. So someone may be awakened to some degree by any one of these many criteria, but that does not mean that they're a perfected being in any sense. And so, yes, um, they have personal blind spots. Uh, they have faults. Uh, they can have uh, ego attachment. Even, even though in, in the four-path model, with the overcoming of the personality view and the realization that there is no separate self, even though one still feels as though they're a separate self, it's less likely that a person who has achieved that type of awakening, according to the four-path model, has become a stream entrant, it's not that they might not manifest these behaviors occasionally, but they can't, they can't uh, fail to recognize the uh, deluded and inappropriateness of the behavior they have for very long. So they can slip into old habits of thinking, and that old habit of thinking might allow them to fall into an egotistical judgment state. But if, they, if they're truly awakened in the sense that uh, the Buddha defines stream entry, then they're not, that's, that's not going to last very long. Uh, it's a descent into samsara that, that uh, they will arise out of again. Uh, what can a practitioner, pre or post awakening, do to keep from falling into that trap? Well, keep on practicing as diligently as you can and deepen the insights that you have and deepen your understanding of the Dharma and practice uh, the Eightfold Path more assiduously than, than ever. Um, for example, someone could have a highly unified mind except for one heavily fortified area of delusion or bad behavior, i.e. a blind spot. Yes, great example. Um, you, someone could have that. They could be first path, second path, it might even be somebody the third path with a big blind spot of some particular kind. Um, 
they might truly come to believe that as a realized bodhisattva, the ordinary rules don't apply to them. Well, see, now that's where I kind of, I, I quibble with that. <laughs> um, um, part of wisdom is realizing what, it, what underlies these rules. The rules, ordinary rules, are, are the tools that we um, need in the world. But um, beneath them, what they are is there's an attempt, they are an attempt to articulate in a way that can serve as a guidance for our behavior, something that is uh, of a much deeper and more fundamental, that is in a much deeper and more fundamental sense true. And um, so somebody might have a blind spot, but if they, if they, if they find themselves engaged in that kind of behavior, then they need to, they need to acknowledge and accept it and try to find out what that blind spot is. If they just practice, if they continue to practice, um, then the practice itself will reveal that eventually. So when you find someone who appears to be awakened, uh, but is in, engaging in a kind of behavior that appears to be unethical, then um, the question you need to you need to ask yourself the question first of all is very difficult to know the motives of someone else. So you have to hold and also to uh, to know how your how the depth of your understanding compares to somebody else. That doesn't mean that you just blindly accept the behavior of somebody who is in a position of, of guru or teacher or just presenting themselves as being awakened. Um, you, you, you do have a right to question that. And as a, if they will listen to you as a spiritual friend, as a kalyanamita, then uh, you could do them service by bringing their attention to that. Um, I know people who are actually wary of awakening since they don't want to become deluded or grandiose. What is the best way to prevent that? Well, that's, you know, that, that is, you shouldn't be afraid of awakening because of that. Because if you recognize that the first, that there's a threshold of awakening, and then there's, there's I mean, they call these paths. There's a long journey that follows that. And, um, if you continue to follow that journey, then the kinds of problems that we're talking about here uh, wouldn't be so prevalent. What happens is that people often get stuck. They may, they may indeed have achieved a certain degree of awakening, or they may not at all. They may have had some experiences that were very profound. Uh, they may be really well-versed in uh, uh, the scriptures and the doctrines and, and the Dharma, uh, they may appear quite wise, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're awakened. Um, 
they may they may have had some experiences that uh, are associated with uh, being awakened, some characteristics, but they but uh, those were temporary and haven't haven't penetrated to the depth of their being, and so um, that's where the manifestation of these unethical behaviors come from. So the way to avoid that is to realize that um, uh, stream entry is just the beginning of a much greater path. And as far as I'm concerned, uh, uh, <laughs> what I've learned is that it doesn't end there. I think the Buddha found it convenient to describe a four-path process terminating with the Arhat. But that's not the end of the process either. And there has been some recognition of that in the Mahayana, but, uh, in, in the idea of the Bodhisattva Bhumis and the idea that uh, perhaps there is something beyond the Arhat. Thanks so much. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, Robert Arnold asks, I'm working with stage six practices. In general, I have noticed a change in perception of the breath of the nose. There is a sense of having descended into the sensations, whereas previously there was a spatial sense of distance from the breath. Also, breath sensations associated with the nose seem to manifest in other body locations, despite stable attentional scope with the nose. I have been interpreting this as a conceptual stripping away of the breath experience that is described as a characteristic of the acquired appearance, the Vihaninite. Yes, that, that is accurate. Uh, that is, that's not unusual at all. There, there's a definite change in the way that you experience the sensations of the breath. Uh, sometimes they seem to be in places that uh, they shouldn't be. And yeah, all of the things that, that you described uh, Robert, um, these, these are typical stage six uh, experiences. Um, don't, uh, don't get too involved with them, but recognize them for what they are, uh, which is that uh, the, the way that we normally experience the world is the, uh, uh, what comes into, arises in consciousness is a really very, very uh, highly complex conceptual uh, product of, uh, of many different uh, um, aspects of our worldview. What you're experiencing there is uh, what appears in consciousness is being stripped of uh, a lot of this uh, conceptual overlay that uh, that constitutes our normal worldview. That you have a nose and that it's located in a particular place is really part of your mind-created worldview. And, um, and so it's possible that you will have experiences of breath sensations that arise in consciousness that, have not, that are not accompanied by the processing of placing those sensations on a map of your body uh, in, in the way that they normally do. So, yes. Okay, and uh, just a follow-up to that. Um, so, normally with the stage, uh, stage six practice, 
uh, and I'm intending to maintain the scope at the nose then, with that spatial stripping away, it kind of confuses the notion of what it means to limit the scope to some area of the body because you're experiencing what's some part of you tells you is a nose sensation, but it's appearing or, or seeming to manifest in a, yes. in a place spatially very different. So in terms of scope, do you just not worry about the spatial roles and attend only to the sensation? Yes, because scope is, is only, only partly, only sometimes does scope have a spatial element to it. If the scope of your attention is the sensations of the breath at the nose, um, eventually you can experience those sensations quite independently of the notion of nose. The, the spatial, what, you, what you've done there is that you have a scope of attention that is no longer including the spatial mapping component. Okay? Um, now, when you want to define your scope of attention, then you define a really easy way to do that is is to define your scope of attention in terms of a body area, a body part, your hand or something like that, and then look for the sensations that are located in that. So therefore, now you've included a specific spatial location in with the sensations as well so um so that is that your, your scope of attention is your hand because the scope of your attention is your hand one of the kinds of sensations that you would experience in your hand that is different than what you would experience at your nose is the proprioceptive experience of the shape of your hand with your eyes closed and uh, with your hand, you, you can feel the shape of your hand, the solidity, the earth element of, of your hand. And uh, so you, th that is, by making that the basis for defining the scope of your attention, then you include those kinds of proprioceptive sensations within the scope of your attention. Now, if you're looking for sensations that change with the breath, uh, it takes many forms in different people, but one of the forms that's fairly common, and, the reason, and it was the reason that I mentioned the, the earth element of that proprioceptive sensation of the shape of your hand, is if you focus on that, you might discover that with each inhale, there's a sort of expansion that is felt. With each exhale, there's a sort of a contraction. But you could, you could find some similar changing uh, thing with uh, the fire element, for, for example, the temperature in your hand fluctuates and so forth. When you define the scope of your attention, you may choose to uh, include uh, a part of your body or, you know, there's so many, so many things that you can choose to uh, limit the scope of your attention to. This sounds to me like you're practicing stage six very well, very appropriately. Um, Great, thank you. David Carpenter asks, um, although I understand your training is in the Theravada and Tibetan traditions, and thus you have not yourself practiced in Rinzai Zen or used uh, koan, 
Yeah, that's true. I'm wondering if you could comment based on whatever you may know of koan practice on its nature and function on the path, and specifically whether you see any parallels between koan practice and the practices in Theravada or, or, or Tibetan Buddhism. Um, no, um, any answer I give to this question, David, is going to be uh, highly speculative. Um, and that would be a, a speculation based on the experience that I have in, in, in my own practice and different forms that they take. Or maybe I could base my speculations on my understanding of the mind. Um, One of the things that I've discovered is that uh, our minds tend to be very much dominated by that one part of our mind that perceives the world in a very reductionistic and analytical way. It breaks a, the, world as a the world of experience as a continuous whole into discrete parts and define them distinct from each other and then it further breaks them down into other parts and it's a wonderful part of our mind for solving problems and inventing things and creating technologies and everything else but it does so by utilizing a perception that is is uh, significantly divorced from the way things actually are. And what I suspect that uh, a koan practice does is you, that part of your mind uh, works on the koan. If it's a good koan, it works on the koan it may think it's solved the koan several times and go to the master and he laughs and sends you off to go back and practice some more. Eventually, though, does is figuratively speaking, throws up its hands and gives up and allows that other part of your mind that sees and understands the wholeness of everything, that no longer perceives you the separateness of, of the body and person that you are that it provides that breakthrough into the insight, uh, insights of um, uh, impermanence, interconnectedness, uh, emptiness, of no self, and, and the realization that you've been making yourself suffer all this time by, uh, by clinging to things that weren't real, rather than seeing, uh, rather than understanding things in a, a more realistic way. Um, it's very liberating not to be separate. It's very liberating to be far part of something that is uh, far greater. It's very liberating to be to see yourself as uh, uh, as uh, interconnected and a part of everything and everyone everywhere. So that's my suspicion of what the primary function of a koan is. Um, it's something that we achieve with different approaches in various practices in Theravada and, and Tibetan tradition. But one thing that uh, um, 
one thing that we have in common is getting getting beyond uh, getting out of the prison of our own minds uh, self-constructed uh, idea of who we are and what the world is and what our relationship to it is and allows that part of our mind that's already there call it the Buddha nature if you want but it's an access it, it's an aspect of human nature you know and I do like to call it the Buddha nature it's an aspect of the nature of every one of us that already knows uh, these truths that already knows the interconnectedness of everything that already knows that uh, there really are no things there are only process there is only process really knows that we are not separate that we are a continuously evolving part of this greater process um, so those are my thoughts um, but let's not elevate them to the status of uh, uh, authoritative explanations please <laughs> they're the thoughts and speculations of a practitioner who has only uh, observe uh, this uh, practice with fascination from the outside so I don't know if that's much use to you but it was it was enjoyable talking about it would the TMI be approached any differently if one were already a stream entry um, and my answer is no that um, to the degree that you achieve stream entry without developing those particular skills that are characteristic of stages one to six, then uh, that would be a really good time uh, to start developing them because they're going to make a huge difference in terms of your progress through the subsequent higher paths. Um, no matter that you're a stream entrant and has and have the benefit of insight that insight is still subject to much deepening and spreading throughout your mind system to many other parts of, uh, of your mind to permeating your being so you don't just realize impermanence that realization continues to deepen and doing the practices that are described in uh, stages seven through ten will only lead to further deepening of those insights and really what a lot of the process is too is coming to the realization that although we might list these as separate insights they're really different aspects of uh, the same thing so short answer with the method TMIB approached any differently if one were already a stream enter uh, the main difference I would hope would be with greater fervor and, and dedication. Uh, here's, a, here's a good question from Kevin Smith. Um, I've heard you comment that the so-called dark night is mitigated by practicing samatha. But does this still mean that someone doing TMI will go through the stages of insight as a dry vipassana practitioner would? The answer is yes, they will go through the stages of insight, but no, not as a dry practitioner, practitioner would. They, you will go through. I mean, what happens with insight is one of the underpinnings of the way that you see and understand the world. 
has uh, been pulled out from under you. Um, letting go into that new reality that opens the door uh, to is um, um, challenging. It, it's frightening. It's um, um, but and 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 so you can expect to go through what is being referred to as the uh, in the progress of insight is being referred to as the knowledges of fear, misery, disgust, termination, and the observation. Uh, you can expect to go through them, but you won't go through them in the way that dry Vipassana practitioner goes through. You'll go through them in a uh, in a much more um, much more quickly, far more easily, um, and um, And those stages themselves uh, will serve as powerful sources of further insight. Um, they don't last very long. They can be as short as, uh, as a, a moment. Um, and it can be a moment that opens up into the... Uh, uh, into that moment of total equanimity in which the insights stand out to you so clearly that a cessation occurs and you become a stream entrant. You might likely experience leading up to that some deep unsettled feeling from your unconscious because it's, it's really all the different parts of your unconscious mind are struggling to assimilate these insights uh, and to modify a worldview. But if you've done the kind of work that Samatha practice requires of you, it becomes much easier. Now, let me just point out that one of the big, well, a couple of things on. First of all, please, let none of us equate the, the knowledges of suffering, the dupanyanas of the progress of insight, with what is being described and called the dark night by various people. People, and people are starting to do that. Let's not do that. They're two totally different things. The dark night is a place you go into because you're experiencing the Dukanyanas without adequate preparation. End of story. What is the biggest part of the dark night, though? One of the things that happens as a part of Samatha training is that you work through a huge amount of your own neurosis. You, you work through a lot of the conditioning that stands in the way of uh, your awakening. You work through a lot of the conditioning that has been uh, causing the suffering that has led you to want to pursue a practice like this. Now, this wants to come, these things want to come up. They want to be worked through in the dry Vipassana practice. But when a person gets to them, they're labeled the defilements of insight, and the instruction they're given is to note them and keep practicing. Let them be there. Don't get caught up in them. If in the process of samatha, you would have purified this, you have, will have shed most of your neurosis, you will have shed most of your internal conflict, uh, your mind will be much more highly unified than that of a dry vipassana practitioner, and so 
you can go through this very easily. If, 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 if you haven't done this purification, if you haven't worked through these things, they all come up when insight comes up. And that's what you've got to work through. That's what launches somebody into a dark night that lasts for uh, long periods of time, that can disrupt their, their life, that can ruin their relationships, uh, their careers, their families. Sometimes they end up in psychiatric hospitals and all kinds of things like that. That's the dark night. That's, that's when something that should never happen has happened because of the way that Westerners in particular apply dry insight practices um, without, without really practicing the whole eightfold path. Um, and so what you really see when somebody's experiencing a dark night is they're not even in the dupanyanas. They got blasted out of the they got blasted out of the progress of insight by the, the all of the unresolved emotional trauma that they that they're still carrying, all of the inner conflicts, all of their neurosis is still there. And and they got blasted right out of it. So that's what the dark night is. The dark night is not the dukanyanas. But the dukanyanas can trigger the dark night if somebody hasn't done the appropriate uh, work prior to that. Um, I've also heard Daniel Ingram talk about cycling through the stages repeatedly once on the path and that it never seems to end. Um, I don't know, I'd have to, I'd have to sit down with Daniel and um, actually it would be interesting to, to talk to him about this because um, once, once you have Well, once you have realized um, the fundamental insights to a sufficient degree, and they have penetrated sufficiently deeply into your intuitive understanding of the world, then um, the mind's reaction to the further deepening of those same insights shouldn't really uh, manifest the characteristics of the dukanyanas. Um, and uh, I, I know, well, I do have uh, I, I, I do have some students who have had the experience of cycling through them repeatedly, but then. Uh, they've gone and they've done the. Uh, they've uh, they've also done the uh, Mahasi style uh, vipassana practice, uh, and in this case, after they'd already done the uh, TMI uh, samatha practice to to the point of stage nine or ten, and it's a funny thing that then then they come back and report that they're now uh, they're now uh, experiencing a uh, repetitions of uh, of of all of the uh, stages, and, and I know in the in uh, Mahasi's progress of insight that he does say that this will happen for each of the path attainments. But um, uh, this may be a place where there's a divergence in our understandings and, and what we what we're talking about, because um, that doesn't correspond that doesn't correspond to my experience. And he also spoke 
of being in the dark night for the majority of his life since awakening. Um, oh, please, please, Daniel, I hope that's not true. <laughs> um, not that there aren't some, the, some uh, yeah, we, no matter what path that you take to achieve uh, stream entry or the path of seeing, you, you've still got a lot of stuff that hasn't been dealt with. And yeah, you're going to still have. There's still going to be some. There's still going to be some heavy stuff that you have to have to work through. But um, um, I don't know. I certainly wouldn't describe it as being in a dark night all the time. And, and I would certainly hope that that's not true, Daniel. But uh, next time we get together, we're going to have to have a talk about that because, um, I, 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 yeah, that's all I can say. Um, we've gone a bit over time, but we managed to get through all the questions. I'm, I, I'm kind of impressed by that. Um, and uh, if those of you who are present would like to uh, make any comments or, or, or add anything to uh, or, or ask anything further, I don't mind staying for a few minutes longer. Julia uh, Dasa, this is Steve Ross. Can yes, Steve. Um, so I have an early edition of TMI, and I'm wondering, you're referring to first path, second path, third path. I don't recognize these terms from my edition uh, of the book. I just don't recognize that. How does it correspond? Um, I, you're, are you, when you say early edition, you're talking about uh, um, the print book or uh, I, I there was a there was an online thing that I produced uh, in the summer of 2000 that I, I put online put up online to 2006 oh no 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 I, uh, I have uh, the first edition of PMI and I have a little right. summary. well so far that's the only edition the, oh, okay. Uh, okay the the Simon and Schuster edition they just put a different cover uh, added a preface and everything else is the same Okay. Um, the no, I don't. I, I don't address that because that wasn't that wasn't what I, I felt was a, a, appropriate, and the book was long enough anyway, and it was going to take so much longer to go into that. That uh, yeah, it just uh, it, it would belong. Well, I don't know how many more books I have in me, and the one one book that I do want to get out of me is one uh, uh, contemporary Dharma. And um, so maybe that's, these discussions about the uh, four paths and really discussions comparing the different, the different versions of awakening, enlightenment, etc., and so on. Because, you know, um, those are discussions that I'd like to have, but they're not the kind of thing that I, I can sit down and, and, and punch out a book for you to read, but uh, we can create I, I wasn't familiar with those terms, and it sounded almost like everyone should be familiar with those terms. That's all. Well, well, by all means, everybody should be, but it's quite understandable if you aren't. These, you know, the, these come from, um, uh, you know, if you study, uh, uh, if you study the... Uh, uh, 
Dharma, and if you read the suttas, then uh, these the four paths are described by the Buddha in the suttas. They're defined, and uh, usually they come up in uh, any kind of uh, uh, Dharma teaching because, you know, they're, they're a really important part of it. Hi, Chiladatta. Uh, this is uh, yeah. Katriyana here. And um, <laughs> I sent a question last night because I wasn't quite sure how the Q&A worked. And uh, do you have that in front of you? Um, Let me go back because I, I didn't see one. I, I went through, I don't think I missed. Uh, I think Nancy just added it to the list because I sent it because I didn't see it. And it's a question, I can tell you, uh, so you don't have to read through it because it's... Okay, sounds good. Um, I'll make it brief. It's a question about the first luminous uh, jhana meditation. Yes. And for years, um, uh, I've had this experience um, when meditating of a, uh, a disc, like a purple light rotating in... Um, when my attention was focused on the uh, third eye region. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm now reading stage eight, um, and that's why this has come up, and it's uh, so interesting that um, this meeting came up just now, because I was really not sure who to ask. And uh, the question that I have really is this experience, and in the last few days I've been going through a cleanse and uh, a purification and it's, I've been having very powerful insights and um, often this uh, this rotating disc will become an eye and the most interesting thing I think you said uh, in the stage eight uh, this, uh, uh, what you've written is that this is a an internally generated um, a phenomenon which as a neurologist is fascinating to me because of course um, visual stimuli are typically needed. Um, and so then I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, uh, this is something that um, I've never had an answer from many people that I've asked about. And uh, um, we discussed about the um, meditative joy experiences that I've had, which have been really powerful. And in that experience, I would often have the sense of a brilliant like the present moment being this brilliant, multifaceted um, experience based on the sense inputs. And it was rotating in this light, and um, it was a very powerful, blissful state. And today my meditation um, on the luminous jhana was even deeper because it, I really experienced that sense of lightness, of um, uh, uh, loss of the uh, sensory um, uh, inputs and just a feeling of very um, airy but um, uh, uh, focused. Um, uh, so I wonder if you could help me with this. Well, <clears throat> um, help you in which way? It sounds, sounds like you're, <laughs> you're having deepening. The, the thing is the deepening of, of jhana is uh, as closely related to the uh, to the withdrawal of the mind from from the senses, the more complete uh, the withdrawal of the mind from the senses is, and of course, so what happens is that uh, you you get these mind generated phenomena arising, um, and uh, 
to the degree that your mind is withdrawn from the senses, you enter a deeper jhana, a much, much clearer. And so uh, this, is, uh, this is completely normal and, and desirable to happen. Um, practicing the jhanas uh, mean dropping the attention and experiencing the mind um, from a from very much from a metacognitive perspective uh, uh, awareness. Um, and that's the wonder of the So genre. it doesn't have to be a white light or anything else, this, this, this phenomenon? Um, not, not, not at all. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be any particular thing. Uh, there's certain common trends. Uh, a white light is, uh, or, or a very bright light. I mean, in my case, it's usually uh, lavender. You know, faint, faint lavender, almost white, but very bright. Some people, it's a disc. And of course, there are other ways of entering jhana that utilize the vision, uh, like the casino practices. And there you'll definitely get some very interesting um, visual effects and lights and colors and things like that. Um, kind of an aside, but uh, some of us have been stimulated by D Daniel in Ingram uh, to uh, try out the fire casino practice. That's a really interesting one. You stare at a candle for a long time until you, you've completely depleted the photoreceptors and the phobia of your eye. And then you close your eye and you work with after image and then after the after image finally fades you go into kind of a murky place where lights and colors start to appear and one of the things that we I haven't experienced this myself but one of the things that uh, um, uh, someone else had discovered was that after you do this for hours every day you start having visual hallucin hallucinations when you're uh, walking around outside and things like that which is really disconcerting. So she decided to Google it and came up with Charles Bonnet syndrome, which I'm sure you're familiar with, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in the context of people who are developing macular degeneration, mm -hmm. they start to have these very vivid hallucinations. Well, I mean, staring at a candle over and over again until you've depleted the, the, the retinal pigments and doing that over and over again for hours or days in a row, um, that's about as close as you can come to a, a, a self-induced uh, macular degeneration, and, and so you get Charles Bonnet syndrome. <laughs> wow. Well, anyway, today's all kinds of things kind of rise. Yeah. Today's experience was fascinating because it brought up the memory of the, the cessation experience that I had, where the mind was completely still, and the sun was shining brilliantly in a clear blue sky, and it made me think that. The sun, in many ways, ultimately, is what we can really, what for me, has uh, uh, become now a very powerful mentally generated image. It's not looking at the sun, but realizing that this brilliant, beautiful, extraordinary light is just something that can be used. That there's no striving anymore um, in, the, in this brilliant luminosity, that the, the sun now, that realization um, today was very, very powerful. And um, I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Um, sounds, it, it, it sounds 
right on to me. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. It sounds like a beautiful experience and uh, and a very profound kind of realization. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what else to say. Nancy had a question. You have to unmute, Nancy. I was just, uh, I just posted his question that um, he had sent to me privately. Oh. So I put it on the chat. So you've okay. already answered it. Actually, once, once you started uh, this, describing it, I recognized I had read the email and I had meant to, I just, it had slipped my mind to go to the email that contained it. Or was it a chat that can, so anyway. Um, yeah, I think it was in an email. And, and I was just going by the comments that were on the Patreon page, so that's why I missed it. I'm sorry. Anyone else want to say anything? Otherwise, this might Hello, be a good time to wrap up. What's that? Hello, Chilodasa. Hello. Yes, hi, Matthias. Can you please uh, talk about the connection between concentration in real life and meditation? Concentration? Outside of meditation and inside of meditation well in it's, it's that's i'm afraid that's a little too general i, I need a place to i, I need okay, a place so to. if someone improved their concentration by a lot in meditation will that yeah. help spill over to things that require concentration in real life and how much and so on. Most definitely it will. And so will the increased power of, uh, uh, of awareness. So yeah, it, it, it is normal if you, if you're practicing to experience greatly improved concentration and much more powerful awareness, uh, outside of meditation. Um, but, uh, it's also important to cultivate the awareness aspect. The, the concentration aspect is going to take care of itself because it's attention-based. And uh, if anything, we are overly caught up in attention and, and we're suffering an awareness deficit disorder. So, the, so you can let the improved concentration of your meditation spill over in your daily life and it'll, it'll take care of itself by accident. What you want to put a little intentional uh, work into is bringing that uh, heightened level of awareness that you have in meditation into your daily life. Thank you. Welcome. Okay, well, great. I enjoyed this and uh, Thank you for joining me today and for, well, thank you most especially for your, your contributions to Patreon. And uh, here is uh, one of the fruits of that, Nick Perry, who is my personal assistant. <laughs> uh, some of you know Nick. Um, he's, I'm so blessed to have him and I have you people and your contributions to thank for the fact that he's here. Um, but uh, thank you for your questions. They're good ones. Uh, I hope you, uh, ho I hope you found the answers beneficial and useful in some way. And I look forward to next time. So until then. Thanks.